I'm going to frame my entire professionality as an experiment, which gives me an excuse to fail, if that's all right with you. Sure, and I'm going to uh, frame my entire life as an experiment, which gives me an excuse to fail, if that's all right with you. I guess ultimately we, we will fail at the end. Life, so, yeah. a great experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Parallel Worlds with me, Ollie Palmer. This episode is an interview with artist, writer, creative collaborator, and all-round sister of mine, Abby Palmer. There is a proper, improvised biography of Abby in a minute, which I'll read out in front of her so that she feels an appropriate level of grandeur before discussing her own work. But I just wanted to start the episode with a quick preface. This was a really fun interview to do, as you can probably tell by the fact it's so long. This length is in part also due to the interviewee's own request. Normally, before I record an interview with a guest, I will do a quick pre-conversation to see what topics they really want to talk about, and if there's something they definitely want to discuss or avoid, so that they get the most out of the conversation, and I can steer it somewhere if we've forgotten to talk about something. Whilst I was talking to Abby beforehand, she told me that she wanted me not to edit the audio at all, not to cut out ums and ahs so that you can hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in what we say. This is, as we will talk about later, central to her own artistic philosophy, in which she presents everything she does as an experiment, part of an ongoing process of being, a reflection of our actual incomplete and improvised lived experiences. But, whilst this is a very long conversation, it honestly could have been ten times this length. I work with Abby a lot, I really enjoy talking to her, and I love that her approach is just so different to mine. It makes us really enjoy speaking to each other. So I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation nearly as much as I enjoyed having it. Here is an interview with Abby Palmer. Hi, Abby. Should I do the whole, I can do yeah. the spiel of, of Welcome spiel. to Parallel Worlds. Yeah, yeah, do it. Um, hi, and welcome to Parallel Worlds. Our guest this week is Abby Palmer. I have to admit, I didn't quite get to the stage of finishing Abby's bio. Normally, I read a bio of everybody who's on, um, but I was sort of flying a bit close to the wind with this one. So uh, what I did write was Abby Palmer's book, Sanatorium 2020, from Pend in the Margins Publishers, is a fragmented memoir exploring aspects of her identity through the process of rehabilitation, both in a Hungarian spa and in a plastic bathtub bought online and routinely inflated in her own bathroom. Given that the book is fragmented, I thought the best intro might also be fragmented. Abby Palmer is an artist whose work has been exhibited in numerous institutions, including Tate Modern, Somerset House, the V&A, and more. Abby Palmer is a writer whose debut mm-hmm. book is about her fragmented experiences and identities, and I hadn't finished the rest of this bit, but she's also published for <laughs> The Guardian and a bunch of other places. Um, Abby Palmer is my sister. You might have been able to tell from the surname similarity, but one of the reasons that, that I wanted to talk to Abby is because we have worked on numerous creative projects together, um, Abby is the voice in the installation Nibble that I did in 2013 at the V&A Museum. Abby is the copywriter behind most of my work. Abby is the person who I have spoken to the most about my own practice and who we've also spoken about your practice a lot. So I, I, 
I've brought Abby onto the show, um, not because she's my sister, but because we have quite an intimate knowledge of each other's creative processes and the changes that we've both been through for the last uh, 10 or 15 years as we've been creative practitioners and as our identities as artists have shifted. And the thing that I would like to talk to her about is the way that the framing of our works and the way that we've brought in the, the, the method of world building has changed for both of us, but has sort of a, a similar core. So welcome, Abby Palmer. Hi, Ollie Palmer. Thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for, for coming on. Thank you for carving out the time. I understand this is the third podcast interview you've done this week. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a time for podcasts, isn't it? Um, uh, I feel like po podcasts were already having a moment. And now um, that I mean, it's actually perfect. I but actually before uh, we spoke this morning, I left a voice note for one of my friends and said that the thing that I'm really missing uh, during the lockdown is um, moving between liminal spaces because that was the time when i listened most to podcasts and also left voice notes for friends the most uh, which i like to think of as little personal podcasts um and and the fact that we're always static in one space at the moment means that i'm not uh, engaging in in quite the same way um and uh, i'm instead speaking on a lot of podcasts which is a very different experience <laughs> Yeah, it is definitely a strange time in that regard. I'm finding myself, yeah, I also don't listen to as much stuff now as I did. I found being stuck at home has meant that I just haven't had those journeys. Normally, yeah. you know this as well as anybody, I call people yeah. when I'm on a journey or when <laughs> yes, I'm running or something like that. <laughs> yep. Yep, so uh, <laughs> the, length, the length of our conversations is generally dictated by the amount of kilometers i have to move and the method i'm using to get through them and i haven't had the chance to do that lately and i sort of i miss that conversation with other people but i also miss that time to sort of just whack a podcast on and jump into a different place and, and sort of jump into somebody else's experiences yeah it's so interesting isn't it how transitional spaces are the sp are the thinking time space like i really um I really miss the architecture of thought that comes from moving from space to space like this. I feel like my ideas are kind of stagnating a little bit at the moment because I'm not, um, there's never a reason to step outside of myself and, and thoughts to come to me incidentally. It's like the unconscious thinking. Um, and that's all, also the time when I consume a lot of, a lot of media and, and have, the idea conversations uh, with you, for instance, mainly with you about about work. Um, so just tra the transitional spaces that allow you to progress from one idea to another in the real world are, are missing for me at the moment, which is really strange. That's it's interesting you say that because so much of your own book is about spaces yeah. and about the spaces that you occupy in order to rehabilitate and and your reflections that happen within those spaces. Yeah. What, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That's that's my question. What? <laughs> uh, do, you, <laughs> do you want to say your question again? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say that spaces form so much a part of your thought process, because I think that that's true of so many people. 
you know, the ability that we have to move around and to occupy and to think as we walk is is sort of a luxury that we don't have right now. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we're both missing. And I think we're not alone in that. But your book is almost a meditation on the thought process. Uh, your book is almost a meditation on the thought processes that happen whilst you are in spaces. Yeah. There's a bit there's a bit in the Hungarian spa where you sort of paint this picture that's a bit Kubrickian, you know. Um it's very cinematic and that leads you into a certain state of mind. And there are other bits where you are on your own and you think in three distinct voices in that book, but they're all framed by the spaces that you're existing in. Yeah, um, it's actually a really interesting, or well, for me, an interesting thing that when I submitted the book proposal um, to my editor, uh, uh, Tom Chivers at Pen in the Margins, um, that uh, I didn't know what form the book was going to take yet. I didn't know how fragmented it was going to be. I didn't actually know what genre it was going to be, um, whether it would be a poetry collection or a memoir or a novel. Um, and it's ended up being kind of a mixture of those those three things. Um, I would say it's a creative nonfiction text. Um, and all I had for him were these kind of fragments of writing and this idea of a space of, of, of um, existing in Budapest in this rehabilitation space by day and existing there at night and existing in London in the day and existing at night. And the book was presented uh, as how I move between those spaces. Um, so when I was in uh, the sanatorium, the, the rehabilitation space in in Budapest, uh, I, I didn't know what I, I was given an arts council grant to go there to research uh, my my disabled body in water um, and and the experience of chronic pain, um, and I didn't know where that research was going to take me. So I just started filming everything. Um, and uh, you you know probably better than anyone in in my life uh, how in I mean you're the Ollie as a filmmaker has has always had a huge uh, interest in Kubrick and in Steadicams and I've learned from from you Ollie as as a as an artist that um, if you can just strap a camera to wherever you're going um, it makes for some interesting footage so I was I was strapping cameras to the front of my mobility scooter and just driving around this giant hotel that um, is it's two hotels joined together by a long underground tunnel and um, and I just constantly filmed that every time I made that journey between the day space which is a, a kind of 90s athletic chic um uh thermal spa that smells like sulfur and then the evening space which is this 1920s art deco uh lounge uh with with a a five-piece orchestra um every time i traveled through those spaces I, i i filmed it um and i ended up uh writing from those transitional bits of footage if that makes sense, and that that helped me to understand a little bit more for my own for my own sake about what was what was happening to my body and my mind as I was moving between these these 
between those two spaces um in, in one constantly focusing on my body constantly focusing on being immersed in water in this very surreal sulfur sulfuric um world and then uh that this evening space that was just like some a, a complete it was like from the sh it felt like the scene in the shining where oh, the wait where jack nicholson's sitting in a bar um and and the barman pours him a drink but he's a ghost uh, it just felt so surreal so so that that became the framework from which the book was written around mm. um sorry i went off on 900 tangents there <laughs> well i'm really surprised um i was expecting to ask you a very straight question and get a very straight answer so i think uh i think we can call this interview over thank yeah. you no. <laughs> yeah um no it's um it is really interesting how those spaces are, are required for for those thought processes and how much they enable you to have them. And I remember when you were studying in Cambridge, one of the things that really struck me, this is before I was in the world of architecture in any way, mm -hmm. but I remember wandering around the campus and thinking, yeah, it's funny how this place is really, it feels designed for thought. It felt like every building was the right distance from another building so that you could casually walk from one to the other and have a little conversation or a little thought as you were passing through. Yeah, that's what I really liked about it. Uh, that's why I wanted to study there, I think, um, because they had all these spaces and it was kind of presented to me as this hothouse of, of ideas and thinking and it, and it felt physically like that. Um, yeah, and what was very interesting for me about that was very quickly in my time in Cambridge, uh, my, my physical health declined and I had to start using a mobility scooter and that changes the way you think um, because I used to think in a, in a step rhythm and now I, I use a wheelchair or a mobility scooter. Um, I think at a different speed and um, I feel like my thoughts are more fragmented. I used... I used to uh, write poetry uh, that was very metered and rhythmic because I was walking. I would write with the rhythm of my feet. And then when I stopped being able to walk uh, as freely and as much as I, as I used to, and I started using a mobility scooter more, I had to change the way I wrote and change the forms in which I wrote. Um, and I think that's really... Uh, reflected in in how I write now because I it's never just one long straight line um, it's a series of fragments told in different forms uh, you can see it in sanatorium that it it sort of um, jumps from a very spoken voice where I've been I was dictating into a camera and and, t and kind of talking to myself um, and then other bits that are written, short fragments written by hand in the bath. And I, I find that the physicality of my body impacts the style of voice that, that comes out of it. Um, yeah, and that goes right back to, um, back to how I exist in physical space. I think, it, I think those two things are really important. Yeah, and I think that that is something that is definitely reflected in... in artist methods so much of what people are trying to convey with with a lot of um i mean i do this myself 
I, I like to jump into different mindsets and move in different ways when I'm thinking in different ways. I find that if I'm writing and I'm able to walk up and down in a room again mm. and again, I have a different type of thought to the type of thought I, that I have if I'm walking from one place to another. I also think it's interesting that whenever I see you in person, I can tell the mood you're in from the way that you ride your mobility scooter. <laughs> and I sort of, I can tell from afar in the same way that you can tell that somebody is sort of walking um, happily or, <laughs> or walking sadly, you know, um, it's it's funny that you found a way of expressing that maybe is not a hundred percent conscious, no, but a way of expressing your mood <laughs> through through your riding. Yeah, that's through your riding and your riding. My right, yeah, I do see my scooter as like uh, a horse or like a good pet. Like um, sometimes, I mean, I, something that I do quite often is uh, kind of accept the challenge of uh, like so it, not a lot of spaces are accessible i really like going to woods and forests and things and um and people will say oh you can't possibly get your scooter over that log we're gonna what will we do and the moment they panic and and say oh you can't do that i in my head i think challenge accepted and um <laughs> <laughs> i can see i can picture exactly this right now i don't know how many times i've seen exactly the scene yeah well the worst time was when i was with uh, my, my partner golo in um in uh where were we? Poland for a wedding in Krakow. And um, we went to this castle that had a really accessible hill and all the way up the hill, it was really accessible. And suddenly it just became steps, but they were long, flat steps. And I was in a rental scooter and he was like, oh, no, we'll have to turn back. And I just didn't want I did, how dare they not put a sign up saying it's not accessible. I was so cross that I, <laughs> I scooted my scooter up um, like. <laughs> and then suddenly I realized halfway up that um, it, everyone around me was uh, staring at the scooter and uh, uh, putting their hands out because I was obviously going to fall down the hill. It, the, way, the way I was, I was on this really precarious angle falling down a, a hill uh, was how that ended up. But I just didn't, I, I, what, I think what I wanted to say was that I see my scooter like a good steed that you just need to uh, know how to control. And if you give it confidence and pat it on the head and, and handle it with confidence, it will do your bidding and uh, it lives a good long fight. And, and um, I have a real emotional connection to my scooter as a character. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely got more gaffer tape than your average horse, I think. <laughs> yeah, it does. My scooter at the moment is trailing gaffer tape, and everywhere it goes, <laughs> um, I feel like it's going to trail could kind of catch coronavirus, and then I'll bring it into my house. But I haven't thought to tape up the gaffer tape. Well, now you have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm still waiting so, for you to do it. <laughs> well, um, maybe I should bring the, the conversation around a little bit because I think that thinking about your the way that movement can be perceived from afar frames other people's perception of you. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about in in this time because we have talked a million times before about a million things um but the thing that i really want to talk to you about now is framing 
and mm-hmm. the way that you frame as you know the parallel worlds course is about creating worlds world building using the techniques of world building from all sorts of different places to help people frame their own creative practice and to help them create worlds around their creative practice which adds a sort of sense of value or intrigue or something else that enhances what they're already doing creatively mm-hmm. and makes it um that constructs a world around their work mm-hmm. which in most cases already exists but a lot of the time just isn't being communicated in that way so i'd like to ask you you're um you are a writer and you're also an artist yeah and how do you build worlds around the type of work that you do and how have you done that throughout the the time that we've been doing creative projects both together and independently ah that's such a good question how do i build worlds so um i guess the first thing i would say is that my practice uh is currently centered around an idea i i developed a few years ago for my own uh for me uh called intrusion theory um and it's the idea that uh because i because my body is kind of defined by uh the limitations of my disability um i spent a lot of time trying to pretend that those limitations weren't there and um i felt like i was always kind of a few steps behind everyone else in in the kind of kind of capitalist achievement based uh language of the, the language of achievement which i don't love but it is some it felt important at that time and i realized that the the thing i could do it rather than pretend rather than trying to kind of circumnavigate i guess why we've been circling this idea of my mobility scooter or why i have um is rather than pretend that that wasn't there and pretend that those limitations of my body and the the pain of my body weren't there i wanted to acknowledge those intrusions um in my daily life and use those as the jumping off point to form ideas um so the best example i can give is actually using my mobility scooter as well um if i were to move in a straight line uh if if I'm say I'm going to meet you in a crowded town center and I'm moving towards you and I'm thinking um, like this creative flaneur having these like artistic reveries all around me, um, I'm moving through space and I'm having these ideas. If I'm on a mobility scooter at a certain moment, because of the way the world is designed, I'll come to a curb that has no curb drop. So I won't be able to get up or down and I'll be stuck. And instead of thinking in a straight line, I have to stop and turn around and find another way around in order to carry on moving forward. And um, in that moment, my artistic reverie is broken because of the practical concern. Um, and it, my thought, therefore, becomes fragmented. So um, rather than seeing that as something to kind of disguise or or veil i i felt like all of those little intrusions in my day needed to be the center of my practice um and similarly when i experience a lot of chronic pain um and at any one point while i'm thinking about 
my ideas, I'm also thinking about the experience of my body, and I'm very conscious of that. So I started to think about my practice as multi-sensory and um, and how different senses interact with one another as I'm as I'm working, um, and. I suppose my focus for the past perhaps five years has been on um, finding ways to use those disruptions and those multisensory experiences to create a world that allows other people to step in immersively to a multisensory fragmented universe and experience uh, the experience of of my body um, and and find that innovative and immersive rather than uh, something that they see but could never understand. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is the way in which you frame so much of the work itself as an experiment. I even get the feeling with Sanatorium that it is an unfinished like work in progress and I feel like the fact that you are continually experimenting both in an artistic and in a literary sense gives audiences an ability to enter into the space that you actually inhabit this strange place where your body is continually in flux where your condition is something that needs to be managed that changes on a daily basis is that a conscious thing uh, yeah, I think um, definitely the idea of my work always being an experiment that people can enter and participate in has been really important to me. Um, some of the areas that I'm interested in um, could be quite alienating. You know, I, I'm really interested in um, in forms of artwork that aren't necessarily... I, I like the idea of the avant-garde, whatever that means in the 21st century, and it, it could be quite pretentious. Um, and I, I like using mixed media, so so poetry mixed with physical interaction, immersive theatre, um, uh, fragmented literary forms. And I feel like, for me, the only way to make that feel inviting... Or, let me rephrase that. The only way... Um, to do that without being a wanker is for it to be a shared experience. I really want my audience to feel that they have control over the outcome of what of what's happening and to feel that their being there is as important as me being there. So as a result, I've ended up creating a lot of work that is interactive and participatory um, where the choices that the audience make have an outcome on the on on the work itself um that is actually really interesting because one of the things when we were in the pre-conversation before this interview you were saying that you would prefer it if the interview itself wasn't too tightly edited that we didn't take out all of the ums and ers and that it has this feeling of honesty yeah i I find it really interesting. Um, I I like to have constraints around me that uh, mean that you can only move in one di one direction at a time, and that creates a very fixed outcome or, or a very unexpected outcome. I feel like um, you you and I, Ollie, both are very interested in the Olympian forms of constraint where rules are set. Um, arbitrary rules like a mathematical number um, and that would then determine the way in which you have to write uh, write a piece or create a, a, a piece of 
text or, or artwork um having uh, some kind of confines i find really helpful in in terms of just making a decision sometimes sometimes like there are so many options in the world and i think one of the problems creatives have is often knowing um where to start or which idea is the best idea um and you and i are both very guilty of that as um in 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 the way we think there there are so Absolutely. many infinite possibilities yeah. at any one time that yeah. i think sometimes um what has worked in our creative collaboration is is listening to each other and then saying right let's set a rule and using kind of very absurd restrictions to develop uh really creative uh pieces and um sticking very rigidly to those those restrictions um even to a point yeah. to a fault <laughs> yeah I, I would say in in both of our cases creating our own criteria for success and our own restrictions that are incredibly restrictive yeah. simultaneously give us the the ability to to break an impasse because to me to me the the worst case scenario is like hey can you design a building in the middle of this desert there's no context <laughs> there's no restrictions you've got as much money as you want you can do whatever because without any sort of restriction, you can't have a conversation. There's no tension. Yeah. And to me, the idea of tension is the thing that, that creates that creates creativity. But it's the thing that fuels curiosity about creative processes. It's the thing that really makes something hold together. If there isn't if this were just a conversation that I was having on my own or you were having on your own, there wouldn't be any sort of interplay. And the interplay between the, the rules and the artifact that it creates in whatever form that is, to me, is the thing that that fuels the creativity. Yeah, and I yeah, and I guess um, w yeah, w going back to how I how I present things in my work as an experiment, I guess the thing that I've started to do in the last five years is sort of lift the veil on what those rules are, so that people can see um, the mecha the mechanics of it. So so a lot of the time, people who who don't feel that they have permission to be creative will say, "How did you?" come up with that how did that happen and what I wanted to do in my own work was to lift that veil and say well this is how it happens you can do it too you have a you have yeah. a say in how this comes so my book uh, for instance sanatorium has lots of gaps in it that um I want they're they're physical gaps they're, they're holes um where I don't I don't leave a clear answer and what's been really beautiful about that is people have started responding with their own um work in other forms like f films and um personal essays and texts written in in response to sanatorium and i wasn't expecting it at all but it made perfect sense that um that people would want to start filling the gaps and and seeing it as a two-way conversation um which it was a completely unexpected outcome but i was really happy that they entered into that world and have um have followed through in so many different ways um and created entirely new worlds that have nothing to do with me just just for, because i left some holes you know yeah it's it's been really funny sort of from the outside seeing obviously i've i've been there and seen how the process of this book has come together mm -hmm. i've seen only tiny fragments which is probably a good way to, to see the creative mm -hmm. process but then i've seen the final artifact and and read it and now there are all these people who feel they have permission to discuss very intimate aspects of your life 
and there yeah. are yeah there are people who've been making videos about parts of your book and reflections on them and writing their own poetry and and all this kind of stuff and it's really it's really inspiring to see that you can be a conduit or some sort of catalyst to help other things happen and i don't think that would have necessarily happened had you not framed the entire context in the way that you did that gives other people permission to take something and run with it yeah i think i really needed it to feel like an experiment and actually even going to the rehabilitation space in the first place was framed as an experiment with no fixed outcome um, it was a research and development grant so i didn't know whether the outcome was going to be um a book or a or a film or, or or what it was going to be and I think um, something that might be interesting for your students to know about about that, for, or, or for anyone who's listening who who is um, wondering how to how to keep going in in their practice, um, a, a, a lot of people face this experience of imposter syndrome, and I'm I certainly do. And what I yeah, found. I I yeah, do too. Yeah, I, yeah, and um, I think that most most people do, most artists do. Is this good? What are the measurements of success in this? Um, I feel that by setting it up as an experiment, I've given myself much more freedom to, uh, to, to, to let go of that imposter syndrome because you can always say to yourself, "Well, this is just an experiment," and and um, and if if the audience doesn't like it. I'm learning from that because this isn't the end yet. None of this will ever be the end yet. And I know, Ollie, that you have done that in your own in your own work. I'm thinking of Amp Ballet, which was in in phases. Um, and yeah. um, I learned so much from watching you always have another phase until until they didn't serve you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, just for for context for people who might not be. Probably nobody's familiar with the lineage of both of our works, but <laughs> what? I think I think the only people who are are each other. Yeah. Um, but I did a project in two thousand and nine to about two thousand and twelve called Ant Ballet, where I created a ballet for ants using synthesized pheromones, um, working with a chemical lab to to recreate the pheromones that ants use to communicate and use those to create a dance that ants would perform that was created through this giant robotic arm but not giant robotic arm um robotic arms by the way have grown recently and it's far easier to get a robotic arm than when i had one and i had to make it myself and um, i just want to add whilst we're talking about robotic arms how much i hated that robotic arm because it used that's to true. punch me in the face <laughs> <It> did. <laughs> when, I was, when i was programming it we used to share a um a house in london and my my studio was on the the top floor yeah i would say top floor i mean it was a very small place that's a, a bit grand <laughs> for what it was floor and we slept in the basement i think as well. <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> oh, our little flat. exactly so in our in our tiny little flat um my in inverted commas studio was this small place but i was building this robot arm there and yeah it it used to keep punching me in the face and Abby in the face because yeah. we'd go and look at it and it would just unexpectedly jerk up where I'd programmed it yeah. badly. It would always but... be when I was eating my breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
I I don't recommend building your own homemade robot arms so intimately on your home if you don't have the space for them to just flip out every now and then because um, they will flip out in your face um, um, yeah, I mean it anyway, yeah sorry I, yeah go ahead I should go back <laughs> um, so yeah I had a project called Amp Ballet and it was I framed the entire thing as an experiment that, that would happen in phases so I only ever got to phase one I wanted to get to phase four eventually because there was this great dystopic sci-fi film called phase four which was all about ants taking over the world but the fact that I framed the first part as phase one gave me permission to fail because yeah. you can you can fail if it's not everything that you're creating, but you can't fail if you're putting your all into doing some sort of experiment that is going to drop off and, you know, people will judge you on it. But at the same time, a, a thing I wanted to say was about the tension that can be created by enabling the possibility of failure. I think that's something that really is quite engaging for people to see. And in all of the works that I've done, I've I've tried to create the space that there is room for failure to happen and a performative failure that happens within the work itself. Oh, so, for yeah. example, uh, so yeah, I and, yeah. and I have failed. I've felt publicly um, <laughs> numerous times. I think you're so, from my point of view, I feel like you're so driven by that um, risk, actually, the risk of uh, it being like where, where we talk about these Olympian rules that we're following. And the, the, you, I think a lot of your work is framed by this at the theater of the absurd. And the, uh, something that's been really interesting to watch is that that process where I can see you be so driven by the risk and the arbitrariness of it. And sometimes having to go, Ollie, Ollie, you, you can fake it. We don't have to live do, make the experiment so experimental that everything might crumble and, and six months or a year of work might might fall down the drain. But the excitement of that seems to be a big driving force for you. Would you say that's true? I would say that's completely yeah. true. I, I think, well, to me, there's, there's a sense that if I'm not doing something new each time I'm producing something, then there's no real point in trying. And in terms of... It, I, I have a strange place in terms of artistic creation because I'm, I'm a fake artist. You know, I didn't train in an art school and I didn't go through artistic education. I'm like a fake teacher because I didn't go through like teacher training college or something like that yet find myself teaching people like creative processes mm -hmm. like the ones that I do myself. Um, I'm a fake programmer because I do bad computer coding as, as part of what I do. I'm a fake filmmaker because I never went to film school, yet I make films and so on. So I, I think if I wanted technical mastery in any of these areas, it, I don't think I would be interested in them anymore. And so if I wanted to make, if you watch the most technically perfect films, they're really boring films. And if you watch the most technically perfect art technology projects, they're really well-made technology, but quite boring art. So uh, the thing that I'm after is not the mastery of the skill, but using it in some way to set up the premise of risk within a constrained uh, within a constrained criteria whereby 
the tension that the audience feel comes from the fact that it could fail at any moment, that it is doing too much. It's like having a very small car and massively over-revving it and making it carry a, a Steinway piano somewhere or something. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that sounds so much like how I'd picture you is that car and that piano. Um, yeah. 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 There's... Um, one of the artists that I, I always refer back to is Francis Elise, who had this great piece, uh, great police, great piece called El Ensayo, and it was a Volkswagen Beetle driving up a hill in Mexico City, and it plays like loud, thumping, chaotic jazz as it's driving up, and then. As it gets towards the top, it sort of sputters and then rolls all the way back down again, and the music stops. Wow, that's and then the music starts up and it goes up. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a complete kind of Sisyphean uh, metaphor. But it's just such a beautiful film because it's simultaneously yeah. really funny. Mm -hmm. you, you really, but you also feel the tension because you, you want this car to succeed, but you also don't because you're enjoying watching the process. And that's where I feel that that's that's where I want to be is, is the, I mean, I want people to see me fail. <laughs> yeah. yeah the I mean, it's so funny because I, obviously I've known you your most of your life minus what, two and a half years. I can't remember how much older you are than me. Um, but when you're, when you got your first car, um, when we were teenagers, uh, all of our, our friends and family had gone through the process of kind of getting cars or motorbikes or whatever vehicle it, it would be. And when you went to choose yours, you chose the most ridiculous uh, vintage Hillman Imp for six hundred pounds. And it was such a it was that Sisyphean vehicle that we had to um, whenever we went anywhere. We, you had a crank that you would get out of the car and I would have to sort of sit in the in the driver's seat and steer whilst or, or next to the driver's seat and steer whilst you cranked up the back and then came around the front and jumped into the car and then um the the <laughs> the exhaust pipe was held on with a piece of string and if we drove for longer yes. than half an hour we'd have to stop on the motorway and pour water over the engine because it would start smoking um and yeah. you for you yes. uh, it wasn't about getting anywhere you had nowhere you wanted to go you really 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 loved the absurdity of the journey and we had so much fun uh in the absurdity of the journey and i think that would frame our creative relationship so so well actually to think of it as as getting into that very beaten up and uh decrepit old car um and absolutely love every minute of it yeah, that, that car was so much fun and yeah. also completely useless because it just, we never made it to loads of places. It was a great excuse for missing things. Uh, but it was. <laughs> but we also. Uh, all right, I, I'm not going to go too much into what we did when we were 17. Um, but I think that that car does summarize a lot of the, um, the absurdity that we both enjoy in projects because there's a part of you when you're talking about your mobility scooter which is almost exactly the same of like oh hang on you say i can't do that thing with yeah. this oh, I can. yeah and the idea of the vehicle itself having a personality if we're talking about creating worlds um i think that having a relationship with with your tools is also really important um something that 
really helped me when I was writing Sanatorium was um, Tom, my editor, uh, went through the book and capitalized the word sanatorium and made it the sanatorium to the point where it started feeling like a character that this hotel that i was living in started to have a life and a and a breath all on its own and the the other main character in sanatorium is the bathtub this inflatable blue bathtub that um I it lives in my bathroom on the floor. I the, for for context, the reason I don't have a real bath is um, I live in a disabled adaptive flat, and um, the bathtub, the, the all of the other flats in in my block have bathtubs, but mine doesn't because of my disability. That the the so, social services in the UK um, don't want disabled people to have bathtubs because it's a it's a slip hazard. Um, so they won't let me fit one. Um, and it, the irony of that is the thing that eases my chronic pain the most is having a bath. Uh, so the main symptom of my disability could be uh, could be aided by a bathtub, but I'm not allowed one. So I bought this inflatable bathtub from uh, China, and uh, it's so silly. It's so absurd. Um, you have to inflate it and climb into it and it's kind of shaped like a big bucket and it's very slippy and it's much 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 more dangerous than the than a real bathtub would be it's much more of a slip hazard and i have fallen in it multiple times and it's also disgusting to wash it's very very hard to keep clean and um my disability makes it difficult for me to to do cleaning and things so it's it's a much less hygienic and much less safe option and the absurdity of that has been a real driver in the book and it, and it's a it's a, the 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 bathtub is a character in my life in that it it's always fallen apart and in the corner of my living or my living room or my my bathroom i trip over it a lot and it and it sort of has its own uh it it slumps very easily i'm on my second version of the bathtub now because it the first one broke so quickly um and my relationship with that physical object is a big part of of the text um, and the driving force. And I guess uh, kind of where I was going with this anecdote is is basically that um, if the vehicle you're using or the 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 physical objects around you that are are helping you function are revealed in your practice that's that's one way of creating a world is is um is kind of uh paint exploring the tensions between the th the things that you use to function every day um and and just uh painting those pictures as as clearly as it's such an absurd image already this bathtub that it becomes it, it it seems like another worldly item, but it is just the item that I'm using every day. And I think that sometimes that's the clearest way of creating a new world is by looking a little bit closer at the world you're in. What I like about the bathtub itself is that you're using this object, which in itself is an absurd object, to paint a picture of a series of processes which are even more absurd. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite ways of thinking about inviting people into worlds that you want to inhabit or kind of things that are creative worlds, you know, framing practice is to invite people into the process and to explain how that process works in some sort of a way. Because by getting people on board with how you've got to a place, 
I think you can also help them to frame the mental processes that you've been through. Yeah. And I think the bathtub does that quite well because it explains a series of processes about cleaning and about ritual and about all of these things which are forced upon you by a sort of an absurd system which says that you can't have one thing, but your your bodge to get around that unsafe item is way more unsafe, mm -hmm. way less practical, yeah. way more dangerous. And that's the kind of loophole that you find yourself having to exist within as a person with a disability. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, so much of my work, my other the other work that came from the the research project uh, in the in the sanatorium in Budapest was uh, a project called Crypt Casino, which is a series of it's a it's a live casino um, with working fruit machines and and interactive games, um, and it's presented as an installation um, where you one of the the things in it, for instance, is in the, the fruit machines are uh, I've hacked into them in a very DIY way with sellotape um, and Microsoft Word, and I've I've arranged the reels so that as you're pressing the fruit machine, they're churning out physiotherapy instructions, kind of one after another. So it would sort of say, clench your quaking limbs repeatedly times seven, and then kiss your mother's elbow repeatedly times seven, you know, and, and it just keeps on changing what the instruction is. Or in one case, another of the fruit machines gives a, a diagnosis. So it would say, um, you the reason you're sick today is um, ecstatic, flailing uh menstrual cramps because of witchcraft or, or something like that you know that it, it, they're, they're mm. giving these abs and um i wanted to kind of draw attention to the kafka-esque um arbitrary loopholes of um being in a rehabilitation system whereby if it doesn't if the rehabilitation doesn't work, it's your fault and you have to try again and the physiotherapist or the doctor will just give you another instruction and sort of say, oh, this is why it's not working. It's it's your fault. But if it works, it's it's because of how well they've helped you. Um, and I wanted to, and, and within the casino as well, um, there are games that explore uh, the experience of having to claim medical benefits or having to um, ha have the, the kind of many, many absurd loopholes where, where if you tell the truth, you're damned. And if you tell a lie, you're absolutely damned. Um, but you, yeah. not, not knowing how, how to come out of that is, is, is a, a, it's a, a constantly very frustrating process for me. And um, Crypt Casino is this very, very visually appealing, um, Instagrammable uh, space to be in. And All I, right. <laughs> I wanted to really seduce people into this world and have them come in and then see, I, I call the tagline Instagrammable pain uh, because I want people to, to, um, to come into it and think, oh, this is really cool. And then realize they're in the middle of this like very uh, sincere anger and righteous indignation at the arbitrary process of it and and the whole thing has all these kind of kafkaesque loopholes in it so you never know whether you're winning or losing um and for me that's been such a big driving force in creating worlds is kind of um just showing the processes that i exist within um yeah mm. 
Yeah, there's also, uh, to go back to Alipo stuff earlier, a lot of the founding tenets of Alipoian practice were about combinatorics. So Raymond Quinault did um, 100,000 billion poems, and that was a poem that consisted of 10 lines. I think it was 10 different versions of each line, which you could just recombine again and again, and Italo Calvino did all that kind of stuff. So there's a, a clear reference there in the way that you're creating barrels within a fruit machine that can just throw up different lines that create a hundred thousand million different possibilities of somebody's experience of that fruit machine yeah and I, the other thing i love about that is um my the main obstacle i have with my disability is chronic campaign which is very frustrating as an artist and a writer and what i really love about creating machines uh, that do that is um I don't have to write the poem, you know, other people can at the press of a button for if you think about it in terms of pure productivity, um, I came up with, let's say five lines and the number of combinations is I can't do the maths loads more um, so it's been really nice to say okay um one of the reasons I want to invite my audience to participate with me is to take the pressure off my own body um and to let them fill in those gaps themselves so so it's it's both um presented as something quite generous to share these processes but it's also for me um, it allows me to create in a way that I wouldn't be able to if I was if I if I had to describe to you using only words in a A to B linear order what m the experience of my life was it that would be a very physically demanding and exhausting process by inviting you in to participate in that it allows me to give you a much more three-dimensional version of my world, which is much more exciting for me and um, and creates new absurdities and excitements that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about with... Oh, sorry, I'll start that again. One of the things that I talked about with Amy Butt before... Uh, she introduced me to this idea of the absent paradigm, uh, Kathleen Spencer's idea within sci-fi theory, that as a reader of any book, you're observing a what you assume to be is a complete world that exists within that work, and I think I think you could probably pass that on to artworks and you could probably pass that on to any works of fiction or all sorts of different things that we encounter in life but in some way you're experiencing a complete world and as an, a reader it's your job to bring the author can only complete that world to the extent that they can write text you know by its very nature it's going to be pretty incomplete so as a reader, you fill in the rest of that text yourself and you patch in the rest of those bits of the world in order to create your own image of what that thing is mm -hmm. and see an entire world. And if you're talking about sort of combinatorix poetry, you're leading people a certain amount of the way, but you're also letting them read the spaces between as something that are theirs. And maybe that's something that we can move on to talk about because I think there are deliberate spaces that you leave within your work for an audience to fill in patches. 
like when you were talking before um before when we were talking about this interview you were saying about the kubrickian corridor and you had a conversation with tom the editor about whether you should actually use the term kubrickian mm -hmm. you know and or describe it as like a wes anderson style corridor or something like that and yeah could you tell us tell me a little bit about yeah. the, the, the process yeah well when i was in the sanatorium i think it was actually you ollie who uh, i sent you a, a steady cam shot of of being in in one of the corridors that it's it's kind of a thermal tunnel that comes out into a very grand hallway with kind of a checkered floor and pink walls and um and you said oh well it looks like Wes Anderson meets The Shining um which was so true <laughs> it was it was it it's um it really felt like that 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 combination of of um kind of kooky Wes Anderson charm and, and Stanley Kubrick sinister kind of haunting ghostliness underneath it um and I I loved that term so much. I included it in my original um, manuscript as a as a description. And um, my editor Tom said, "We you don't need to say that. You need to show me that." Um, and so I started taking these these um, scenes that I'd filmed uh, of, of the Steadicam footage and just describing them frame by frame as what was happening as I was moving through and the thoughts I was having, the ex or the experiences I was having maybe not the thoughts but the responses people were having to me as I was moving through this space on a mobility scooter in this very posh wealthy um hotel uh where where people were mainly much elder much more old much elder older than me and much wealthier than I was um and and also moving on two legs and and the kind of this eccentric 20 28 year old with a self-trimmed fringe moving through the space with this loud very physical mobility scooter um that makes loud beeps and it kind of electrocuted me on this with the static in the hallways and and um and felt like this big bumbling thing um moving through the space uh in a in a filmic way was a really helpful way to, to um i think how i'm gonna explain something that happens when you're a medicalized body quite often is you have to detach and dissociate in different ways um to to cope with your experience um and uh, a lot of writers i've come across who move in in kind of medical or institutionalized spaces seem to use this this um filmic lens to process what's happening to them. I read a really, really interesting piece by the writer Sinead Gleason a while ago about um, moving through hospital corridors to visit a friend, and she described them as Ridley Scott corridors. And we had a really interesting discussion about the way as a, as a patient and as a writer, when you're moving through corridors, you create, you, you add, uh, your favorite director's eyes to what you're seeing or add project mm. project using using a camera director's eyes and something that i've been really aware of recently is um is is kind of tapping into some of those directors to or to using film to to help me see my writing in in a way that allows other people to see that too and and people have been 
picking up on the Kubrick references, despite the fact that they're no longer in there, it, he's alluded to, but it's he's never mentioned. And yet um, you can see the bits of the book that are written at, from film have ended up feeling like a film, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that you're showing, not telling. Yeah, yeah, showing, not telling is exactly what it is. Um, for me, I found it really helpful to physically film the world that I was in in order to describe it. It's a bit like taking a photograph of a still life and then painting from the photograph. You you see it in a slightly different way because your memory isn't absolute, is it? Like, um, your your the way you remember something will always be adjusted. And when you take a photo the way that the light hits it is somehow more solid. But as you take that photo, you're taking it in a style, you know, you framed it in a particular way already and seeing it purely in that frame, you, you can't, you can't move to the side slightly and, and, and draw that orange from two angles. If you've got a flat piece of paper and in the same way, um, filming the, the world that you're in, uh, is one really interesting way of creating a new world because you you sort of you've set the tone before you started if that makes sense yeah i i think in a similar regard um there is a way that the globalized style that is encouraged by things like instagram and social media really has changed the way that people frame objects and things in their houses. Mm -hmm. I think it's funny that there are so many people that have, and I'm not criticizing people who, who are on Instagram or anything <laughs> like that, um, but there are a series of really impractical design choices that I've seen recently that people have made because they look amazing. Yeah. But they're really just a reflection of things that people have already seen and therefore have validity in their own minds. And I wonder to what extent you're taking taking films that you've seen and using those to patch in lived real experiences and then somehow validating the feelings that you have based upon them. Yeah, I mean, it's really helpful um, it, sometimes looking at things through a creative lens rather than kind of a therapeutic or a medical lens has been really helpful for me um, because it means I don't have to necessarily engage with the with the horror of the thing. Sometimes the things that happen to your body as a, as a medical patient are so painful and, and, um, and scary and sad that it's helpful to dissociate somewhat and see them as part of a creative process um, and see, mm. yeah, I think, I don't think that's exactly what you were trying to say, but, um, but I think that's one no. reason creatives do, do that. Um, I guess another way of answering what, what you, what you just said about, um, about Instagrammable framing. Um, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I thought about Instagramable framing because I I thought it was interesting that you you in Crypt Casino responded to the fact that people will definitely enter a space now and the first thing they do is reach in their pocket, pick out the phone, yeah. and take a square photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything. Something that I started doing uh, with with Crypt Casino was actually to go. Well, actually, more people are going to see this via Instagram than are ever going to physically experience it. So it was always in my design to have um, these small pockets that would be very pho photographed. Um, and 
uh, and play with that because it's so absurd, isn't it? It's, it's kind of, yeah. and people don't like that, but actually, um, if that's what people are doing and how they're experiencing art, I actually love using my camera as a way to process information. Even during this lockdown, the thing that's kind of been keeping me going is going to my local park and um, filming the geese. Um, and because I use Instagram stories a lot, um, there's, I, I tend to film in 15 second bursts because that's the length of time you get in a story. And, I, and I've started filming in portrait mode rather than landscape mode because that's uh, what looks best on a, on a story. Um, so that my, my audience uh, might, I want, I want people who can't leave the house. A lot of my, a lot of my followers don't get to go outside at the moment. Um, so that they get a, a sense of immersion and a, and a full world experience of what the geese are up to for just 15 seconds. And I really love having yeah. that little restriction. And I really like making films for Instagram that are exactly a minute long because that's what you get in your in your feed. And you get a, you get yeah. either a square or a landscape space in which to um, to do that. Um, and I think that framing. Um, I actually really like it, even though it's absurd and it's and it's strange and we're all just content creators these days. I really like the fact that it's one more restriction and it's one that means it's one interesting way to think and one interesting way to create. Um which Yeah. Well it's funny yeah. with for example YouTube when it lifted the restriction on the amount of time that people's videos could have, they realized that it was cheaper for them just to let people record infinitely long videos essentially that suddenly you got this splurge of really boring long videos yeah. whereas <laughs> when you're limited to just doing something very quick the creativity that comes from a platform like tiktok having extreme constraints on how content is created and uploaded means that there's an immense amount of creativity there compared to yeah like I'm not saying that there's not creativity on YouTube and there's not creativity on Instagram and places like that, but I think that creativity does quite often breed, or sorry, constraints quite often breed creativity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I think that having to think around the constraint just it's like having a canvas, isn't it? Instagram works well because it's a series of small squares. Uh, you know exactly mm. what you've got, um, but within that canvas, a million different things can happen even down to a million different versions of a millennial pink wall and a monstera plant you know they it, even though the tools are the same um yeah you, you can people want to share their their take on that their version of that yeah. and um and and then there are other people obviously creating much more unique and, and interesting things within those those little frames and i'm really interested in both i i think that both are really important versions of and of um participating in a world and right now where we're very confined and and unable to go outside i think that actually the connections that can happen through through seeing your world in a in a square that's similar to a a stranger on the internet square or different to a stranger on the internet square um it's one way of also being connected <laughs> yeah that's um yeah it is and it's it's funny now the breakdown of actually seeing the inside of a lot of people's houses it's very easy to construct an artificial image of yourself that is something else that's very controlled and one of the things that's been quite refreshing for me and i mean 
I'm f- frustrated with the lockdown, as, mm. as a lot of people are in terms of like, I really like going and spending time with people, like spending time with students, talking to them about projects. But it's quite nice in a way that every time I've been doing tutorials, there's been like a mess around me. And I don't, <laughs> <laughs> there's no illusion of me having any sort of perfection <laughs> anywhere because there's just a lot of uh a lot of humanity to to everybody yeah um, yeah can I, I can i jump off like quickly mm-hmm. um because we have 10 minutes left yeah if that and i would like to ask very quickly one of the things we were talking about doing before was describing a an emotional journey through the other person's work Mm -hmm. and trying to think what it would be like from an audience perspective to have the ideal review of somebody else's work. This is an exercise that we did on the podcast last week. And it's something I would like to ask you to do to me and Mm -hmm. I will do to you. Mm -hmm. If we can describe the types of world that the other person is building and the way that somebody is supposed to sort of emotionally engage without describing the work itself how do you first find out about the other person's work what is the ideal thing that you should be thinking when you leave the other person's work and the reason i'm asking you this is because we we both know each other's work intimately but i think it's interesting to hear from another person's perspective what the key things are in the world building that we've both engaged in are Huh, is, yeah, it's such a good question. So can you ask the, would you mind asking, the first question was what the emotional connection is or how do you find it? Yeah. How, how do you so, find it? So in, in a few words, like in a, in a few minutes, like, I mean, two or three minutes, can you describe the emotional journey? First of all, how, what's the ideal way that somebody would find out about my work and what's the ideal way that they would experience my work? What experience, what emotions and questions are they supposed to be having whilst it goes on that have been framed by the world that I've created around it. And then when they go away, what things are they supposed to be still running over in their mind? I think you would find your work. in an ideal situation um you would stumble across ollie's work in you'd be either walking down a street and suddenly find yourself immersed within a game or a pro or or a performance um and you didn't know it was about to happen to you but suddenly you're in it um, I think you you would land so often uh, with with your work, Ollie. Uh, it's about landing in it when you when you weren't expecting it. Um, either other. So sort of Alice down the rabbit hole kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. It, so so you might you might know that something's going to happen, but you don't know what. Yeah. Alice down the rabbit hole is is an ex- and 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 then you're immersed within it. Whether no matter what the piece is, it would always be something that. Um, that surrounds you and 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 you're part of um there's always kind in an ideal world there's always a slight um sense of disturbance at the at the back of it the sense that all all might not be well or that there's some kind of conspiracy happening around you that you're suddenly within um and and a big part of the process of of that of of 
interacting with the work would be um, unpicking what the rules are and who is the mover. There's there's the sense of the unmoved mover in in the background, so, someone who's who's uh, pulling all the strings, and you don't know who that is. And a big part yeah. of what would be ruminating as you left that world would be who who was that and how has that impacted me how have they changed me and i think that um in an ideal world as that uh, as that person leaves they might get to see bits of it and get a taste that some that they'd always have a taste that there there's um more more going on than meets the eye and a big part of leaving would be constantly unpicking that and finding different ways in which that space uh was still with them throughout the rest of their day or their week or their year um uh, the the idea of of the the idea that so something has been shifted and they're not quite sure what that's that's really interesting i've never heard it from that perspective before but it makes total sense i think that this idea of entering through a means which is non-conventional mm -hmm. like a, to me, the worst case scenario is you hear about one of my projects on Facebook, and then it's framed perfectly within those constraints, and you go along, and it's just exactly what you expected. The, the best case scenario is you don't even know who I am, but somehow you feel like you've been in the world of that work. Yeah, exactly. Like the sense of immersion within it and, um, mm. and not knowing is, yeah, yeah, can I just add one, one more thing is yeah. that I think that even though those things are true, another thing that is really important to me is revealing the process that's behind these things. Yeah, I so meant to add that. that tension yeah. Play out loud. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like the sense that you, in another version of it would be that you enter into not the what the world but the the other part of the world which is you get to see the strings being moved and that's the world like the 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 world that you're in is seeing a world being created and suddenly there's this sense of possibility um of of world building happening in front of you um and and you get to see the unmoved mover but i would say that that's still a a even by seeing it it's a curated version of that so you still get to it, it as it's happening um and and you get to engage with it and participate in that you would you would still be entering into a world just by the very fact of seeing a world being created it's a bit i, I yeah. imagine it not just as alice in wonderland but also like um the wizard of oz where you get to see i think if i were to describe ollie palmer the artist he would be the um the the man behind the green curtain in the emerald city of oz um pulling on a bunch of strings and creating illusions but he wants you to see that he wants that to be the the part of the journey that is the most exciting far more than the yellow far more than the yellow brick road and the things that happen along the way oh well thank you for that description i think that's um that's really uh spot on and and also really flattering and um like insightful i realize we only have a few minutes left yeah. that we can actually talk so do you mind if i just sort of um 
freestyle your yeah, sure. your ideal participant i think similarly your work is ideally experienced if it's stumbled upon if it is something that catches you a little bit by surprise because i think that the way that it's framed is visually enticing so whatever happens i'm talking specifically about your artwork not your book um not your writing but the the artwork itself is visually enticing and you create these little moments that people are supposed to be hooked in by but gradually as they're seeing more and more bits they get more and more of a, an embodied sense of what it's like to be you and they patch in to their own minds what your embodied experiences how you're experiencing the world how you're passing through it the physical restrictions that you have and how these affect the sense of creative constraint that you you put into the work i think that whilst they're experiencing it they should feel first of all joyous there is an absurdity there's something in the instagram live sessions that you run which is joyously um I, I think you want a sense of chaos, yeah. but sort of fun chaos, um, chaos that you can enjoy again, seeing the constraints and where the edges are fraying. If you were a sort of performer on a cabaret stage, you would want to have slightly fraying jacket that had been handed down to you by somebody else and some sort of um, off kilter music playing that makes people feel slightly uneasy but also they can see that it's they're in on the joke as well so it's sort of participatory but that sense of unease is there to to frame the embodied experience that you want to create for them that they should feel physically moved by what the work is and start to think about their own relationship with their own body in some sort of a way and i think the takeaway experience that they should be thinking about days after they've they've been through it is first of all one of compassion for other people who have different physicalities but also one that is far more in tune with their own physical being yeah i mean i would say it's really interesting hearing you say that because for me uh like one thing that i think actually in the last few years I've, I've tried to do is really seduce people into coming to my show so they I, I have I tried to talk not so much about the physicality beforehand and and get them to come in and go oh this is going to be good what is this it's weird and it's strange and and so to consciously enter into the the chaos um, and I, I use this term monkey glamour quite a lot to describe the type of um, aesthetic and, and and I like the idea of putting on a world so they kind of step into a feeling um, and it being this really exciting glamorous thing and then getting there and halfway through suddenly going oh wow i hadn't thought about my body in in that way before mm -hmm. um i'm not sure how much i need them to feel empathy and compassion as much as to feel their own bodies and and feel the feeling of I, embodiment I think, you could just, I think you could just say the word feel yeah, I, you just, I just want, want them to feel, feel. <laughs> yeah i want to create a feeling i want them to yeah. step into it and be but i want them to be seduced by it and then to and then to realize that underneath the layers of seduction there's something else going on um yeah so yeah, yeah thank you for One. that very generous description also Oh no! Um, yeah, I, I hope it sort of was accurate-ish in terms of what the what the aspirations are. Um, one final thing I wanted to talk about: we've got 
one minute before we need to go. So I need to do the whole wrap up. Myself. But um, I just wanted to bring up the practice, the the, the thought that we both have uh, tried to embody this type of feeling of world building in all of the things that we've done inside. And I think a lot of the stuff that we've done outside of our creative practices, including the parties. And I just wanted to um, <laughs> to say about the toilet music that we've always put on <laughs> yeah. at parties. And I have these uh, lovely memories of, of parties that we used to throw where we would try to create an entire world to jump into an entirely different space, but that also they would always have um, this rewired radio in the toilet playing a very specific playlist to create a sense of unease yeah. that would uh, quite often people at parties go to the toilet to to jump away and to escape from uh, the, the main event. And we tried to create a totality. Mm. <laughs> yeah. With uh, yeah. accompany whatever was going on in the bathroom at the same time. Yeah, my favorite was Barry White uh, at a 70s party. Uh, that was a really yeah. cool, a really nice experience. And like the lighting in the toilet. So for me, it wasn't necessarily our knees I was looking for, but, um, but uh, a sense of entering into a different space and having that moment when you're when you're going to the loo at a party quite often it's because you don't know what to do with your hands as well or like you you don't know who to talk to so you think oh, i'll just nip to the loo for five minutes and look at my phone or something uh, at least i do because i'm horribly anxious as a person um and um stepping into that space and it being an entire world that you could just be immersed in for five minutes felt so important um yeah and and we I think that was something that was really fun about living with you as adults um, was that we got to create kind of all of these fantasy strange these strange fantasy worlds for other people um, as as performances but but presented as parties um, so yeah yeah I think I, I, yeah, I, it, was yeah really it was really fun I miss it now yeah I am afraid that is all that we have time for um abby it's been such a pleasure talking to you on this podcast i was really looking forward to this conversation and um i've been thinking about it all week and it didn't disappoint i'm really happy that we managed to have this conversation thank you for being so generous in everything that you've said and with your time oh you're and very welcome it's always nice to catch up <laughs> yeah um yeah Thank you for coming on and I will speak to you at some point soon. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that's it. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening this far. Congratulations on making it through the entire one hour and 22 minutes. I'll be back soon with an interview with Tim Clare, one of the key inspirational figures behind me doing a podcast in the first place. So stay tuned.